And I want to bring to your attention another passage um, that I believe does uh, help us to uh, hold in balance with this, this morning's text, even as we are encouraged by the truth of the new covenant, which we were studying this morning in 2 Corinthians. Uh, it, it can be abused, unfortunately. Paul was aware of that. Uh, in other places, he would write, Shall we sin that grace may abound? Uh, we also see this, this problem uh, with James. James is uh, talking about people who were uh, basically saying that they could simply have faith that is simply at an intellectual belief level and it didn't really matter what works they had. They could mistreat people if they wanted to because God's gracious. That's fine. Um, of course, that's not at all fine. Jude would talk about those who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And certainly Peter is urging, as we have often seen on Sunday evenings this year, uh, urging his audience to holiness. So Christ frees us. Christ gives us life. The Holy Spirit enables us and empowers us and strengthens us, encourages us, and continues to keep us. But um, even as we are encouraged by the truth that we come just as we are, we always have to remember that the Holy Spirit does not keep us as we are. And similarly, even as we are called into a new covenant, the new covenant is not a, um, a, a covenant that permits us to get away with sin and unrighteousness. Uh, yes, Christ has fulfilled the law. We certainly see that, and we saw that this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But we are also very, must be very well aware that um, uh, we, we still have uh, the Lord our God to love and our neighbors to love. The commands of God, the moral law, is completely intact as something which we must submit to. But the new covenant, uh, by the Holy Spirit, works out from within. So what... What, what God is doing in our hearts works out as opposed to something that's being coerced externally. Do this, don't do that. Obey this, don't, don't do that. Um, those type things. So as we, we read in Philippians, a letter in which Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work of His good pleasure. We read in Philippians chapter 1, which is our passage for this evening. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. May the Lord bless the, the reading of His Word. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for 
the revelation of yourself in Holy Scripture. We thank you that your word is breathed out and that it is profitable. Um, we thank you that we can find herein all sufficient things for life and godliness. And we ask, Father, that you would help us as we um, uh, think about this text tonight, that those, uh, th those central themes of it would resonate with us and that we would be renewed in our commitment uh, to follow you and to, uh, even as we are heirs to a new covenant, um, not of promise, but of fulfillment in Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that we would walk therein in the joyful liberty and freedom of Jesus Christ, but with responsibility, with worship, with joy. In Jesus' name we pray and ask it. Amen. Now, it can be very um, abstract sometimes to think about suffering and persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ. Can we, can we be absolutely honest about that? That um, whatever we endure in our lives here in 21st century London is seldom anything to do with who we are in Jesus Christ, with the faith that we have, with the Bible that you hold in your hands and uh, public gatherings like this at times of worship and praise without fear of any um, intrusion. That is not true around the world. So let, let's not kid ourselves about any sort of you know, persecution or suffering that is um, uh, for being Christians and practicing the Christian faith. We, we, we publicly evangelize every week. And I don't believe in um, uh, years of doing that. Uh, we have had issues. Does everyone agree with us? No. It is a free society. So we expect to be able to communicate and them to communicate and us to disagree freely. But we, we've not had issues. And we've had challenging conversations. We've said stern things. And while it, cannot, uh, it might not be true of everyone everywhere, we've never had issues with law enforcement in, in the area. Although be some jobs worth who comes along sometimes asking if, if we have a, a permit or a license or whatever to distribute literature, but that's, that's not even valid. The law actually would be on our side if it were to be appealed. Um, it, you know, so sometimes when people talk about suffering and persecution for the outworking of their faith, uh, and they're talking about those things, it, it can ring a bit hollow for one who is perhaps like myself a bit analytical. However, we do have a fair amount of psychological and emotional persecution that goes on, a fair amount of um, manipulation that happens. Think about certain things that we would have taken for granted 10 years ago, just 10 years ago. Uh, Marriage was, in this country, between a man and a woman. That's an example of something. Uh, we believe that that was something that was not only legally upheld in our nation, but it was something that comported with biblical witness. And we could say that. And we could encourage people to uphold a biblical doctrine of marriage. And we could preach freely on that. We can still preach freely on that. But not without people disagreeing quite stridently and a fair amount of upset. Uh, 
Uh, it becomes more difficult when someone asks you as a Christian, if they know you're a Christian, what do you believe about this? What do you believe about now it's evolved less than 10 years on from that, from uh, gay marriage, it's evolved to just the general celebration of um, all manner of you know, sexual things, heterosexual and homosexual and other sexual that the scriptures do not talk about. It is uh, actually uh, a hypersexualized society that is horribly obsessed with sex and sexuality and when we express any disagreement by upholding a biblical ethic, we're the ones who are obsessed to the point that there are people who have lost jobs. There are people who have, um, even if they have not been fired, they have felt forced out. Uh, there are businesses that have suffered and closed. And there are others who feel that they cannot speak up honestly about subjects like this. In 2013, when the government was exploring um, uh, changing the legislation to redefine marriage in the statute books of this nation, uh, we engaged a lot with that as a church, and um, there was a fair amount of teaching and preaching involved um, in uh, that particular subject at that time. Um, and there have been numerous moments uh, when it's been addressed in some way or other since then. We now have things where um, uh, at a very, very public level, not even Christians, are being quote-unquote canceled for um, their beliefs in um, um, uh, male and female. Uh, and their uh, perspective, which happens to comport completely with scripture and biology um, uh, against the transgender movement. And there are a number of things. I've just focused on one that is very much in the news constantly these days. But there are many other things, not even in the same realm as that, which may make you tonight wondering about conversations that you may face in the week ahead. Perhaps you had conversations this past week. Um, uh, I, I know uh, our, our brother Adrian sent a, uh, a, a screenshot of... A, conversation that he observed about abortion and again something that scripture um, and scriptural principle certainly would be very clear on um, and the testimony of the church from its earliest days just mere centuries after the New Testament was written um, uh, when it comes to yes the image of God uh, when it comes to prenatal life and to uh, infant and mother care and compassion. These are things that are very important. They're things that we have addressed many times in various ways as a church. And yet people feel that they, Christians feel, that they cannot speak freely. You can speak freely. People will always tell you, oh, it's a free country. You can say whatever you want. There's freedom of speech. I, I suppose what we are worried about is not so much freedom of speech but freedom after speech. Can I still go to my job? Can I still engage in um, um, the activities that I used to? Can I still have the same friend group? Can I still 
all of the things that we have taken uh, for granted, we begin to see erode because we have spoken what we believe Scripture would have us to do in certain very uh, relevant social contemporary issues. Now, the fact is, Scripture says things that um, depending on the, the season, depending on where society is at, People will accept. So, so if, if we start preaching about what the Bible has to say about the poor and looking after the poor, we're presently in a cultural moment where that's very cool. And where people are like, oh, absolutely, you know, the, the poor and let's donate to food banks and let's, you know, everyone wants to talk about the poor and the needy and that is excellent. That's not always been the case. That's not to say we're not still a classist society in many ways, but... Um, it, even uh, if it's at a paternalistic level, uh, there are people who are taking more of an interest in that. And the Bible speaks to that. That's very popular. Uh, similarly, if, if someone were, were to apply um, a biblical teaching to matters of race and racism and um, ethnic prejudice and any number of uh, uh, various things connected to that, uh, it would resonate. Because people are awakened to certain realities in our society and in our history. And it's very trendy to talk about these things. Very trendy to, um, uh, to stand up to racism or whatever. Um, but it wasn't always, was it? And so we, we realize that throughout the history of an ungodly and lost nation, there are seasons in which Scripture will say things that are deeply unpopular and popular. Depending on how a person who is lost receives it and manipulates it to their own affirmation. What we are called to in an age of, and, and every age will be like this until Christ comes again, an age of confusion, an age of uncertainty, an age of division and strife, is to Christ-centered, gospel-grounded, holy stability. Thus the passage before us this evening says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Here's the truth. You cannot help how someone else is living. Perhaps you feel that even more now than ever before. You cannot control how another person is living. You cannot coerce or legislate even at this point. We have no, no um, friends really in any political party in this nation um, for others to live worthy of the gospel of Christ when they don't even believe in the gospel of Christ. When they don't accept the gospel of Christ. But what you can help is whether you live worthy of the gospel of Christ. And are there things that you are thinking, saying, and doing that are in, in some way um, uh, getting out there that diminish the presence and power of the gospel in your life that can be used as excuses for rejecting biblical teaching in certain ways? The fact of the matter is, as fallen sinful human beings, there are always going to be areas where we may, uh, where, we, where we err, where we may be accused, 
truthfully of hypocrisy at some point. As we grow and as we change, what someone says and does um, today may completely contradict something that they said or did five years ago, ten years ago. We're, we're not uh, simply photographs, are we? We're moving pictures. Our life is, is one that tells a story. There's a narrative, and in that narrative there is development and there is change for better or for worse. And sometimes, however, there are people who say one thing and do another almost simultaneously. And so Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Recently in the news, we, we saw this, this fellow who had established himself as something of a moral crusader in Parliament. And, um, uh, and then uh, he's reported for watching pornography in the House of Commons. Like, you know, he, he, he was, some of the positions that he took were positions that we as Christians would say, oh, you know, you know um, we support that, we endorse that. We don't endorse pornography. We don't endorse watching pornography in session in the House of Commons and then going on to the television and saying that you were actually supposed to be looking at tractors or something and ended up on another website and, and, and then revisited it another time. It's just uh, hypocrisy. And so what then people do is they say, oh, look at this fellow. Look what he was doing. And, you know, no surprise to me, having watched this sort of stuff play out for a while. Oh, and did you know he opposed gay marriage? So the two are connected in some way. But the point is, this is a man who, who had various positions that he took that were of a moral nature. And he grounded it in some sort of sense of morality. And now he's outed as... Yeah, someone who watches porn in the main session of the House of Commons. Embarrassing. Uh, a shame. But what about us? Where, where, where do we stand? Uh, what, what, are, what about our lives? Are we living, is our manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Another fellow in the USA. Um, frankly insufferable at multiple levels, but um, uh, has again staked out his positions on um, moral issues. And there are areas where as far as policy and the moral issues of the day, we would say, okay, this, this, this guy seems to be saying some important and helpful things. And yet, all of this horrible other stuff really outweighs that. When it comes to demeaning the dignity of other image bearers of different ethnicities and nationalities and um, uh, facing various crises, whether they be um, immigrants or asylum seekers or poor people within their own nation. Uh, furthermore, uh, stuff, uh, you know, pictures of him wearing women's undergarments, um, partying uh, wildly and uh, all sorts of other depraved and debauched escapades and all of this hypocrisy. Now, we, we can and should expect that in some ways of the world, but not of people who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, 
I don't know about the professions of faith of any of these examples I've given, but I could pull out stories like that of people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, of people who take strong stands even in the public eye um, on, on various important things in our society and their behavior or their conduct, at least in moments. And that is what our life is made up of. Moments are not worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does it look like for you and me to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, I, I want to focus on his language of standing. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing. Firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. The first thing that you might consider is simply, very briefly, that you stand. Paul, speaking to a church that is existing in a context which is facing physical persecution, writing as someone who is imprisoned himself for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ with other friends and colleagues who are similarly imprisoned or facing similar persecution because they believe in Jesus. Paul says, whether I come and see you, which I can't do now because of my chains, or am absent, I, I'm comforted simply by hearing that you stand. Do we stand or do we flee? Do we stand or do we sit? Do we stand or are we totally absent? Do we have any witness? Are we salt to, to this rotting, decaying society? Are we light to a dark world? Or are we just coasting our way through life? Uh, it, it, you know... Unfortunately, it can be said about some pastors. Our friend Wally in Walthamstow said recently something along the lines of, um, of pastors who are just, they have a job and they're working for retirement. Is that what our life is? Is that the purpose of our life, the meaning of our life, the essence of our life, that we're coasting along uh, through the, the rigors of this human existence, of this life, and we are maybe suffering, maybe not, but we're just waiting until we, you know, we're keeping our heads low until we get to a point where we think we, we have enough saved up and we can retire and rest and just have a, a restful and peaceful life afterwards. To, to what are we living? For what are we living? What is the meaning and the purpose of your life? Why do you exist now? Not tomorrow, not next year, not some dream that you are chasing, but now, why are you alive? And for what? And how? And Paul says, I, I desire that I hear that you are standing. To sand is worthy of the gospel of Christ. To sand is worthy of good news. When you have good news, you, you stand. 
and you announce it. You speak it. You proclaim it. And you have opportunities in your life to do that in different ways. It could be something intentional. It could be a matter of sitting down with a work colleague and reading Scripture together. As I've, I've heard quite a few people in the city especially are doing and it, with great impact. It could be a matter of how you respond to scenarios in your life. Someone comes to you asking for counsel and you give them worldly wisdom when you have eternal truths that are, are far more valuable. How you cope with difficulty and suffering. No, we may not endure the same things that Paul and the Philippians were enduring, at least not yet. But we endure other troubles, other difficulties. These could be things within our families. They could be things within our, ourselves and our own health, whether that be physical, mental, or emotional. <clears throat> it could be things that are, are going on within our wider family as far as their health is concerned and the impact that has on us, the various crises that affect us at a very personal level, or even things that are going on in the world around us that nonetheless impact us in various ways, some more closely than others. How do you respond? Do you fall down? Break down? Or do you stand? And if you fall down, don't immediately think. Maybe you say, well, tonight I feel like I have fallen down. I feel like I'm fallen and I cannot get up. But the Scriptures say that a righteous person falls seven times but gets up again. And so um, we, we have to know that it's not necessarily something to be destroyed over if we have fallen or failed if we in various ways have not stood perhaps if you leave this place feeling condemned then you will have missed the whole point of this we are new covenant people our message is not one of condemnation it is one of Christ who got up himself and who raises us up with him so do you stand as one who stands clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? As one who is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? As one who walks in the path of saints through millennia before you? As one who stands in the fellowship of believers now in the life of a local church? As one who has all power and authority given to you in Jesus Christ to make disciples? Uh, do you stand as, as one who is determined to persevere because you are preserved by the Holy Spirit for Jesus Christ? Do you stand as, as one who is right with God and right with your brothers and sisters and not only right, but being made righteous by the Holy Spirit for now and all eternity, do you stand with hope forever, eternal hope, and present help from the Lord God? Do you stand? But not only do we see uh, being worthy of the Gospel looks like 
standing. So the truth that you stand is itself an answer to the question. But not only that you stand, it is important how you stand. Because unfortunately there are some who stand, but their posture when they stand leaves some to be desired. And we all fall short in various ways perhaps at that, but there, there, are, there are ways of standing which are perhaps more Christ-centered than others. In the text before us, we are encouraged as we live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ to stand with strength. Thus he says, stand firm. He wants to hear of the Philippians and we might say of extension uh, of us that we are standing firm. Standing firm, of course, is yes about standing with, 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 with some degree of of, uh, of strength, but do not mishear and think that that necessarily entails physical strength. Yesterday I was talking to someone um, uh, who said that he was done with, as he put it, he's done with religion because he prayed to God for strength and God didn't give it to him. And he prayed some time ago and um, I mean he's still alive. Whatever things he has had to endure, he has endured. So I told him, well, I, I why, why do you not think that God has answered your prayer for strength? And he says, because he feels weak, but he's alive. And he has endured numerous things that he mentioned, some of which were not particularly uh, from um, a normal human standpoint, unusual or out of the ordinary. But because... Basically, things hadn't gone his way in life. He thought, I can shelve God. Well, that's, that's not right, is it? But standing firm is not simply a matter of how you feel. In fact, it may be the very opposite of how you feel. Standing firm relates to resolve even when you don't feel great. Even when you are not by the world standards strong. As the Apostle Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Endurance, perseverance, standing firm is not simply, uh, if at all, about physical strength, but rather it is about whether even in your moments of greatest weakness, as Paul sat in prison writing this letter, and as the Philippians endured a church context where they faced all of the normal challenges of church life, but with abject poverty, they stood firm. Our mental, emotional, and spiritual resolve to commit ourselves to focus on Christ and to strain forward for the upward calling of God in Jesus Christ our Lord is what he's talking about. So we stand with strength, but also we stand with unity. He wants to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit. One of the presenting problems of the church at Philippi was a disunity. It actually was a very wholesome and healthy congregation, but that does not mean that they didn't occasionally have their issues. And there is within uh, the letter towards its conclusion 
and entreaty in chapter 4, verse 2, to two women, Euodia and Syntyche. And he's entreating them to agree in the Lord. They both know the Lord. They are both known by the Lord. They both have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ by grace through faith in Him. They are both committed to the life of the local church, the membership of the body of believers. They are both serving in various ways and in different ways. There, there is no disunity, it would seem, on matters of faith doesn't mention any particular matters of practice that are at least of, of substance, but they have some disagreement. And so Paul has to plead with them, and he even calls in a third party to help them to agree in the Lord. Now they may not agree in whatever it is that they're presently disagreed in, but they can agree in the Lord. And they can treat one another in a lordly way. In a Christly way. In a way that, that honors Jesus and in a way that honors each other. Thus, elsewhere in the, the letter, in chapter 2, he encourages them to treat each other with humility. With kindness. With servant-mindedness that, that elevates the other and... and, and thinks of the other more highly than you think of yourself. And that's, that's what Paul is urging them towards, humility and unity. Thus he says, "Stand. I want to hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit. The dispute between these two women was so trivial and needless in the grand scheme of things that he does not go into any detail whatsoever as to what it was about or what occasioned it, what the context was. He spares no detail in other letters, but doesn't really talk about it much here. Simply, they disagree. They have a problem. There's a conflict, personality issue of some sort, perhaps. It was negatively impacting church life, however, in such a way that news of it had reached him. Imagine Paul suffering in prison, and he gets news about two people in the church clashing. It's just not the sort of thing someone wants to hear when they're wondering, am I going to die for my faith? Two ladies having it out in the church. That, that will really bless you. Um, so he pleads with them. Here's what I want to hear. I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit. And furthermore, not only do we see that they stand with strength and with unity, but that they stand with action. Standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side. With one mind, striving side by side. So they're committed together, a united church, united in Jesus Christ, Standing firm, striving side by side. Of course, we know that the weapons of, of our warfare are spiritual. And they are not of this world. This is not about coercing a lost world to faith in Jesus Christ. This is not about um, storming the, uh, the, the literal political strongholds of this world, of this nation, much less, uh, and seeking to compel people um, uh, to externally accept the gospel. 
Rather, it is again us letting the manner of our lives be worthy of the Gospel of Christ, whatever that might cost us. But doing so with single-minded, one Holy Spirited, one-minded, strong resolve for the sake of the Gospel. Striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel. We want people to believe in Jesus. We want people to believe the good news of the Kingdom of God. That Jesus Christ is Lord. That He reigns. That He saves to the uttermost all who come to Him. That our sins, though they are like scarlet, yet when we come to Him, they shall be white as snow. That He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That if you are weak and heavy laden, you can come to Him and He will give you rest. That when you walk in darkness, He will be your light. That when you walk in a world of death, He is life. And He will raise you up to be with Him forever. That, that, is, what we, that is what we believe. That's good news. And so as we stand with strength and with unity, we must do so with action. You and I have a mission. And that mission is, it is our mission, not my mission. Not the elder's mission. Not the deacon's mission. The mission of the people of God to make disciples. And as we are engaged in that, that mission of making disciples, of living in a way that is worthy of disciples, ourselves, we must do so with struggle. It's not always convenient. It's not always um, comfortable. In fact, most of the time, it's inconvenient and uncomfortable. But to follow Christ. And the reality is, our lives are far more convenient and comfortable objectively at so many levels than Paul could have ever imagined or dreamed. But it's also with courage. He says, um, not frightened in anything by your opponents. He wants to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. He does not say they do not have opponents. He does not say that they do not have enemies. In fact, he assumes they do. But he says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. We are unlikely at present in this nation to end up in prison for faithfully communicating the gospel of Christ. Again, we have made that very much our task, our mission, and it's not landed us there yet. I suppose the question is, if it lands there, if it lands us there, how will we respond? Perhaps we can be so blind to the, the winds of society that these things just creep up on us. I was reading this week a Chinese believer 
um, who was um, actually correcting a mentality. Uh, so, yes, there are some people who do have something of a persecution complex, perhaps. A bit of, you know, woe is me, we're so persecuted. And someone made the comment that, um, you know, uh, uh, Chinese believers must feel so sorry for us in the, the West persecuted by, you know, someone said something unpleasant to us on Twitter. Or, um, you know, Disney has some sort of trans uh, statement that they put out or whatever. Or this particular uh, organization has flown the rainbow flag. Oh, you Chinese believers, they, they're, they're praying for you. So persecuted. Now, I, we, I, I chuckled because I thought, oh, you know, that's actually, you know, good point. But then an actual Chinese believer said, we actually do pray for you um, because we see things that make us very concerned that you are not prepared for the sufferings that are coming, that you do not realize the sufferings that are already there, that you dismiss the reality of these things in some ways. And he used the analogy that may be familiar to you of a frog that is a bit a violent image, but a frog that's slowly being boiled. Are you familiar with that? And you know, it's just there in the pot and it's swimming around in the pot. It's cool water at first and the, the, the pot, the, the, the fire is lit beneath it and the, the water is just slowly warming and the frog's just chilling. And, you know, eventually it's, okay, it gets a little warm, but he's, he's there in, in sort of his little frog jacuzzi and all is well and then it hits a degree that's a little too hot. It starts to panic and then quickly it accelerates and the frog is, next thing you know, boiled. It's a violent image. But it gets the point across that there are things that are happening all around us that, that we might dismiss and say, oh, it's not what they're suffering there. It's not, it's not in the um, Open Doors World Watch list top 50 countries where following Jesus costs the most. I mean, it's not going to land us on that list. Nor, nor should we desire to be included herein. But it is a matter of concern. How will we face greater sufferings when we can't even handle the little things that we have in our life? The little moments of discomfort or awkwardness. So Paul says, uh, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does that look like? It looks like that you stand, how you stand, with strength, with unity, with action, and with courage, not frightened in anything by your opponents. And then finally, why you stand. Why do you stand? Why, why do you stand now? Why can you stand now? Why will you stand in the future if you're holding on to Jesus Christ? Verse 27, it is for the faith of the Gospel. With one mind striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel. Verse 28, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction when you're not frightened by your opponents. It's of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. 
So when they are abusing you, when they're mocking you, when they're scoffing at you, when they're doing whatever they want to do with you, and the more aggressive and more oppressive and more violent it gets, nonetheless, if you are still standing firm and not frightened in anything by your opponents, that's just bewildering to those opponents' mind. This person is standing firm and it's not deterring them. They're not changing their beliefs. They're not backing down. They're not changing or altering who they are in Jesus Christ or what they believe. Why? Because the faith of the Gospel. Because we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We have salvation. And it's a sign to them of their destruction. We do not have anything to fear. As we're told elsewhere, do not fear those who can kill the body, but not the soul. They have, we have things that they can never take away. Don't let, you know, they, they all want to talk about their identities and various things like that. And don't let people take away your identity. To squeeze you into their identity, their mold. I mean, they're, they're, you're evangelizing. That is, you are proclaiming good news. Of freedom and life, forgiveness, of hope. So many other people are proselytizing. That is, seeking to convert to their way of doing things or their way of life. There's a difference. Everyone's promoting something. We have something that is eternal. As we, we stand firmly in Jesus Christ for the faith of the gospel, we do so as a prophetic portrayal of the law and the gospel. Standing firm and not being frightened by your opponents in anything it, it speaks law to those who are perishing. They should be afraid. Elsewhere, we read that they are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. But we're also proclaiming the gospel that we have something that is so good that we're not letting go. Now we, have, we believe in something that is so great and glorious, we will not exchange it for the world's lies and for the things that it offers. Certainly not for the approval of various and sundry mobs. We do all of this for the sake of Christ. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you. That is like a gift. It has been gifted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So when and if you suffer for Jesus Christ, you join the saints and the apostles and Christ Himself. Paul says, don't think about it as a curse. Think about it as a gift. It's been granted to you. To join Jesus Himself, to join the apostles, and to join the early church in so great a struggle. We, we all love stories of courage and 
boldness and bravery and whatnot until it's time for us to be courageous, bold, and brave. And we don't know when those moments will come. We don't know how they will present themselves or in what context. The important thing is to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Does anything else really matter? Can, can we park other things and say, this, this is what it's about. This is who I am. This is why I am. I believe it was Martin Luther King who said something about you never know why you're alive until you know what you would die for. And certainly, Jesus Christ knew who, who and what He would die for. He came to save the world. Do we know what we would die for? The question is sometimes asked and people are like, oh, I would die for my faith. I would die for Jesus Christ. Then the question is, are you prepared to live for Him? It's very easy to say, when it's abstract, in a moment of bravado, I would die. But He's not asking you tonight to die. He is asking you, in fact, He's urging you, He's telling you to live. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Amen.